Let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for another opportunity to come and hear your word and to learn from you. And we pray, Lord, as we look at this somewhat strange account, that you would fill us with your spirit, fill us with conviction to live holy before you, to deal radically with sin, and to be your kind of people. And we also pray, Lord, if there are any here this morning who are under the weight of conviction from your spirit, their conscience has been aroused, Lord, we pray that you would bring them uh, to full repentance this morning. And Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark. We've been working our way through this account of the life of Christ, and we come this morning to verses 14 to 29. And I know immediately some of you are thinking, whoa, that's way more than Randy can handle in a single morning. And it's true. I've been dealing with this all week. What am I going to do? How am I going to say all this? Uh, But the Lord... Uh, will, I think, trust help, help me to make it through. My goal is to get through all of it. But there's a sense in which every chapter, every section, every verse that we've covered so far in Mark's Gospel, there's a sense in, wh- sense in which we've been trying to answer the same question. And that question is this. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is Jesus? Mark's answer, of course is that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of humanity. And He's setting Jesus before us every Sunday, every section of this Gospel. And He's calling us to see Him, to follow Him, and to repent, to turn from our sins and place our trust in Christ. But, throughout history, there have been others who've tried to answer the question of, who is Jesus? In the 1700s, there was a movement that began which became known as the quest for the historical Jesus. Some of you are smiling because you're aware of the quest and they're on their third leg of the journey now. Um, These are people who are not looking for the Jesus of Scripture. They're looking for what they call the Jesus of history. And now immediately you understand the dilemma here or the This is a journey or a quest that is inevitably going to fail because they're putting a distinction between history and the Bible. The Bible, of course, is history. They don't like the history of the Bible because it's infused with supernatural elements. For them, they are naturalists. The supernatural doesn't exist. Therefore, Scripture can't be true. So what these people do is they sort of take the sections of the Bible that they like uh, and actually, they, you know, they have committees, and they say, yeah, Jesus probably said this. No, he didn't say this. And they have different ways of evaluating if Jesus really said this verse or not. And, and all of this, of course, is them just picking through the Bible to find and formulate a Jesus that sort of matches up with their own philosophical presuppositions. In the end, the Jesus of the quest is a Jesus that looks just like each individual scholar. It's essentially a a Jesus made in the image of the individual. And these people have been doing this for 300 years now, and it's no surprise that there's no consensus, because what they're doing is they subjugate 
the Word of God to their own pride. And of course, when you do that, you end up making Jesus into your own image. But fundamentally here, what I want to just underscore is that this method is an attempt to answer the question of Jesus' identity from a position of pride and self-exaltation. If you try to answer the question, who is Jesus, from a position of pride and self-exaltation, don't be surprised when you arrive at the wrong answer to the question. You can't know Jesus from a position of pride and exaltation. God abhors the proud, but He gives grace to whom? The humble. You exalt yourself above God, and you try to be the ruler, the arbiter of truth, you will never know the true Jesus. So that's one way people try to answer the question throughout history, but there have been others, and, and this is happening even in the present day, who take a much less intellectually rigorous approach. They don't care about scholarship or research or history, for that matter. All they care about is their immediate pleasure. They've exalted their sinful passions to such a height that they don't care to investigate the claims of Jesus. All they're interested in is pursuing their own sexual desires and material pleasures. And so their love for the illicit is so large that they make these generalizations and hasty conclusions about Jesus. And they're really, at the end of the day, they're not being honest at all with the Word of God or themselves because what they don't want to do is follow Jesus and lose their pleasures. That's really the issue. And what we see in our, our text this morning is both of these sort of realities at play. The pride, the pride of the historical, the quest for the historical Jesus, and we see the passion this sort of desire for self-indulgence that keeps you from actually wanting to know who Jesus is, lest you be barred from your enslaving sins. Both pride and passion always will lead, always will lead to the wrong conclusion about the identity of Jesus Christ. And what we see in our passage is these two vices of pride and passion. They sort of are the two ingredients that lead Herod Antipas to repeatedly ignore God's counsel to him and spurn his own conscience, which inevitably produced in Herod a tremendous sense of guilt and fear that resulted in his wrong understanding of Jesus Christ. Now, those are all complicated factors, and there is probably at least a month or more worth of sermons in this little section. I've been reading this biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and his method was to preach a passage until he'd exhausted it of all sermon content. I'm not doing that this morning, all right? So you're, I'm going to preach this passage, and you're going to be like, oh, he didn't say this, he didn't say this. Well, I, I, I'm going to give us the overview uh, because I want us to be able to sort of continue our way through the Gospel of Mark without getting caught up here. But I'm calling this sermon a case study in unbelief. It's a case study in unbelief. But I could easily have called it a case study in misidentification. Because that's really what the text is about. It's how a figure like Herod Antipas, who had all the resources in front of him, all the benefits of, 
of sort of being able to interview Herod, interview Jesus, interview all the parties involved. How would a figure like Herod arrive at such a wrong conclusion as to the identity of Jesus Christ? And the main lesson I want us to learn this morning is this. Unrepentant pride and unbridled passion will always lead you to think wrongly about the person of Jesus Christ. And to think wrongly about Jesus has immediate and eternal consequences. So why don't we look at our text together. Will you stand with me? We'll be in Mark 6 and we'll start reading in verse 14. And I'll warn you, this sort of reads like a soap opera. Okay? So hang in there. Verse 14. And King Herod heard of it. For his name, that's the name of Jesus, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John whom I beheaded has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry, immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. You may be seated. It's a very dramatic story, and in some places it leaves you scratching your head, and for me this week I've been scratching my head saying, why is this here? What is Mark doing? What is the Spirit of God doing to put this this passage here? And as I've wrestled with it, I I think it's going to fall on us with very, in a very powerful way, I'll put it that way. So let's get into it. Verses 14 and 15 open up with a report about the identity of Jesus. 
apparently the ministry of Jesus, a ministry of the apostles rather, uh, who had just been sent out, we looked at that last week, and commissioned to go and preach the gospel, apparently that mission was basically accomplished. It was effective. Jesus had expanded his ministry through these men. They were preaching, and the news about Jesus was spreading even more throughout the region. So much so that at this point, it reached the king on his throne. Now, in reality, Herod would have known something about Jesus for quite some time. But at this point, or up to this point, rather, Herod had not shown any real interest in Jesus. Why? We could speculate. It's probably because Herod was so concerned with his own self-indulgence and pleasure that he had little time for the happenings in Galilee. Even though Herod was the ruler of Galilee. His name, we need to get to know him a little bit, his name, his full name was Herod Antipas. He was one of the four sons of Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great from the birth narrative of Jesus, who was the one who had tried to kill Jesus by slaughtering all the males in Bethlehem. This was the same Herod who rebuilt the temple in an attempt to try to uh, win the Jewish people over to his political side. But it didn't work because the Jews actually resented him for his brutality and his excessive immorality. And he reigned from 37 B.C. And in 4 B.C. he died. And when he died, the Roman emperor divided his territory among his three surviving sons and his sister. One of those sons was named Herod Antipas. That's the Herod of our passage. At the death of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas was given a fourth of his father's kingdom. And the text says that he was a king, but he wasn't really a king in the formal sense. He was actually a tetrarch, which means that he was a ruler of a fourth. And his portion of, the ter- of territory was the region of Galilee and Perea. Again, it wasn't his kingdom. It was Caesar's kingdom. And Herod... Antipas was put there to rule over this little region on behalf of Rome. But apparently, Herod, Antipas, didn't like being called a tetrarch. Uh, He wanted to be called a king. And so he preferred that title, and so the people in his region would have all referred to him as king. This tells you a little bit about the power trip that he was on. He ruled over this region for 43 years until he was banished in A.D. 39 by the Roman emperor on suspicion of a coup. But up to that point, when he was banished, Herod lived in this region, on the Sea of Galilee. Well, he had multiple homes, but he lived there, and he lived among the people as the king. He had an opulent, indulgent life, And in most ways, he was just as morally bankrupt as his father. And we we get a glimpse of the moral bankruptcy in the passage we just read, which almost seems inappropriate to read publicly. Um, But it's in the Word of God, and God says it is appropriate, so we do it. But it's, it's an image of moral bankruptcy and opulence and wickedness and revelry, and we'll spend some time thinking about that. But here we are in our text. Herod, Antipas, calls himself the king, is on his throne, and he receives a report about this man 
Jesus. Verse 14, the first report that comes to him is that Jesus was, verse 14, some were saying he was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So picture Herod on his throne, the reporters come in, they're sort of collecting the ideas that are floating out there, speculations about Jesus, and the first report says, we know who he is. We know exactly who he is. John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And we don't know how long John the Baptist has been, has been dead. All we know is that he is dead, and we know that Herod Antipas is the one who killed him. So for some reason, the people connected to Herod, they look at Jesus and they deduce that the only explanation for Jesus' power and ministry is that he's being energized by this spirit or maybe the ghost of John the Baptist. That's the only way to explain it. They acknowledge that what Jesus is doing, no mere human could do. And their best explanation is this sort of superstitious belief that the spirit or the ghost of John is back or John is back in some form. All right, that's the first report. Now put that on your catalog of who is Jesus. Here's you an option. All right. Option number two, verse 15. Others were saying Jesus was Elijah. Now that's a bit more convincing. There's some more, uh, there's some Old Testament uh, text to back this up. Malachi 3, 1, 4, 5, and 6 say that before the final judgment, God was going to send a prophet like Elijah to come and prepare God's people. The irony here is that the people bringing this report don't recognize that the prophet like unto Elijah was the man they had killed. Then there was a third group. This group was speculating that Jesus was neither Elijah nor John the Baptist, but he was a prophet like the prophets of old. Now, of course, they were right to say that, but we, that, that's, not to, that's to say too little about the Lord. He was a prophet like the prophets of old, but he was much more than that. So anyway, there are your three reports. Herod, here they are. This is what they're saying about this man Jesus. Here are your options. So Herod hears them, and then in verse 16, he draws his conclusion. Look at it with me, verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Why? Why does he side with the first group? It's probably the most illogical option. Um, but logic is not what's at play here. Why does Herod draw this conclusion? Is it because it's the most rational explanation of the identity of Christ? Is it because Herod looked at the evidence and concluded that this was the most logical conclusion given the details of Old Testament prophecy and the promises of God and the claims of Jesus and I've interviewed all the people involved and this is what I think is the best explanation for this individual? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, if we look at verse 16, 
and analyze it a little, we can see that Herod's conclusion about the identity of Jesus had nothing to do with Jesus at all. He doesn't consider who Jesus is. All Herod does is he hears this possibility and all of a sudden he's terrified. He's terrified because he knows what he has done and he's fearful of divine retribution. Look at it with me. Verse 16. When Herod heard of it, he kept saying. We'll just kind of look at it phrase by phrase. Now in the, in the ESV it just says, he said. But the grammar here points to the fact that this was something Herod was repeatedly saying. When Herod heard of it, he kept on saying. It's called the imperfect tense. He was saying it over and over. And look at what he was saying. John, whom I beheaded. Now again, this isn't immediately obvious in English. But in Greek, the personal pronoun is added in to make the statement emphatic. So it's something like, John whom I myself beheaded. So over and over, he's saying, John whom I myself beheaded. It's almost like he's coming to terms now with what he has done. And he's feeling the weight of his actions. And then look at the last phrase. John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Has risen is a passive form. It's a passive verb. And here it's called a divine passive, meaning that God is the subject of the verb and the one carrying out the action of raising up John the Baptist from the dead. So in Herod's mind, he understands that Jesus is John the Baptist, whom God has risen up from the dead. And he's terrified. Why is he terrified? Because verse 20 of our passage, we'll get there later, but verse 20 in our passage tells us that Herod understood that John the Baptist was a holy man and a righteous man. Meaning that he understood that this man that he beheaded was a man sent from God, a godly man. Yet, Herod was able to behead him. And in verse 16, it's as if Herod all of a sudden is feeling the weight of it all, and he's terrified. He knows that he could be in a lot of trouble here. If their report is right, he's in trouble. He's about to be haunted by the ghost of John the Baptist. Could it be that God raised John the Baptist from the dead in order to bring about a divine retribution on me? And again, it's probably less like John the Baptist is physically raised from the dead and more like it's a spirit or a ghost. Something is coming upon this man, Jesus, to empower him to do what he's doing. And, and it's very superstitious. And Herod is terrified, and he buys into this most illogical option, not because of reasoning out, but because he is afraid of what he's done. So the reports come. He's only thinking about his guilt. He's only thinking about his fear. And so his conclusion is that Jesus must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Are right, you tracking with that? 
I know that none of you have probably thought that ever in your life. You're thinking, why is this relevant to me? <laughs> we'll get there. Hang in there. I think the idea here, though, is Mark is sort of laying this out for us, lest anyone think that this view had any grounding in reality. And so what Mark is going to do is he, he's going to give us, in verses 17 to 29, all the background to how Herod arrived at this wrong understanding. Okay? It's the background to this wrong view of Jesus. And what these verses do is they lay out for us exactly what was going on with Herod and how he got to the point where he drew such a faulty conclusion about Jesus. Now, I'm under no impression that you all here this morning have the right conclusion about Jesus' identity. Now, if you are a member of Calvary Bible Church, we know you do because you've sat down with the elders and we've interviewed. But I know that there are many of you here, and some of you are here this morning, that you, you have arrived at some conclusion about who Jesus is. But my question to you is, is that right? What is it that has gone into your evaluation and your conclusion about the identity of Jesus Christ? And what we're going to see in this passage is that there are two things often that go into that conclusion, that evaluation, that lead to the wrong conclusion. Pride and a pursuit of sinful passion, sexual passion. Okay? That's what we're going to see here in this passage. And so John, I mean Mark rather, in verses 17 to 29, give us the ba- he gives us the background to this formulation of a wrong idea about who Jesus is. And it begins really with Herod's conscience being awakened. That's verses 17 to 20. His conscience is aroused. And notice that verse 17 begins with the word for. Verse 16, here's his conclusion. Verse 17, for. This is a logical connector, and it tells us that Herod's view about Jesus was logically grounded in what Mark is about to tell us. So let's look at it together. Verse 17, for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. All right, you get that? It's complicated, isn't it? Uh, it's kind of like the family tree of Herod. It's complicated and interwoven and very, very ugly. Let me try to parse it out for you here by giving you some background. So Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas was married to his first wife. He ended up having ten wives, but when he was married to his first wife, wife, he went on a journey, a trip to Rome, and he stayed with his brother, Herod Philip. Part of the complication is they're all named the same first name. But he went on this journey, he went and stayed with his brother, Herod Philip, in Rome, and while Antipas was there in his brother's house, history says that he fell in love with Philip's wife, Herodias. And so the two of them, Herod, Antipas, and Herodias, because they're now in love, divorce their spouses, and they marry one another. You can imagine the drama in this family. You thought your family dynamic was rough. you've, You've seen nothing until you've studied the Herod family. But you can imagine the upheaval this would have caused. And it actually goes beyond just the familial dimensions 
Remember, Herod is the ruler of Galilee. And his desire, like his father's, was to win the vote of the Jews. He wanted them to like him and support him politically. But his life, obviously, was a moral wreck. And his marriage to Herodias would have been totally offensive to the Jewish people because it began, one, with open adultery, and it ended up in an illegal divorce. Not to mention this. Herodias was Herod's niece. So you've, in this one little act, you've got adultery, unlawful divorce, and incest all rolled up together. And so John the Baptist comes along. If you know anything about John the Baptist, he's not going to let this fly. So he starts preaching against Herod's sinful marriage. Verse 18. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. But notice it says, John had been saying this to Herod. How did John the Baptist get a hearing with Herod? Well, probably what happened was that John the Baptist had been renouncing Herod's behavior in the streets, and Herod and Herodias got word of it, and they did not like that. So Herod arrests John, probably as some sort of threat to him, get it together, stop that, or look what I can do to you. And at some point, John the Baptist would have come before Herod Antipas to give an account of his preaching. What's he going to do? It's a man, my life is in his hands. Herod was not the king, but he had executionary powers. And here is John the Baptist. Clearly, Herod Antipas has sinned and is living in sin and needs to be called to repent. What's he going to do? Is he going to soften the blow a little bit? This is a political conversation. He needs to sort of scale it down a little bit. Not at all. Not at all. John the Baptist stands and he says to Herod exactly what he was saying in the streets. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He doesn't soften it because he's in the presence of the king. Actually, it seems as if he's more emboldened because now he's got the audience of an influencer, someone who has power. And he's not afraid. He preaches the word to hear it. There was a Puritan who said when he preached, he felt as if he could carry the king in his pocket. Uh, and this is what John the Baptist is doing. Not because John the Baptist is so wonderful, but because John the Baptist knows he's the mouthpiece of God. And so here he goes in, he's God's representative, and John the Baptist would never dare to go against his conscience and misrepresent God. So he stands tall, renounces Herod, calls him to repentance. And so we see his courage, but we also, really, this is another interesting in, insight here, we see God's kindness. Who's the best preacher in the world at that point? John the Baptist. Herod gets a one-on-one -on -one with John the Baptist. This is just remarkable mercy to Herod. And God lovingly, graciously sends John the Baptist to call him to repent. That itself is a sheer act of God's mercy. But here he is. He's enmeshed in his wickedness. 
And, and God sort of turns the wheels of providence to bring Her- John before Herod to call him to repentance. But notice how he responds. Notice how Herod and Herodias respond. Let's look at Herodias first. Here's John the Baptist preaching. What do they do? Herodias is entirely hardened by the word. She hears the truth. She's confronted by her sin. And she hates it. She hates it. And she hates John. And and she just wants to kill him. Look at verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against him. Literally, the, the, the language there is, she had it in for him. She had a grudge, and she wanted to put him to death. But there's nothing to inflame a grudge and hatred of someone like a limitation on your own power. Here she is, the princess. This guy is, you know, wearing, he's eating locusts and wild honey, and he, he looks like a nobody out there in the streets. And he's preaching against me and my husband and calling us to repent. How does he have the audacity to do that? I want to kill him. But I can't. I can't do it. Why can't she do it? Well, because Herod wouldn't let her. This adds to the complication of it all. Herod responds to John's preaching in a much different way. Herodias is hardened. Herod, we're not really sure exactly what is happening. Look at verse 20. Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Safe from whom? Herodias. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. This is like back and forth, back and forth. It's complicated because the relationship between Herod and John the Baptist was complicated. This sentence just reflects that. Herod understood that John was truly a man of God, sent to him to call him to repent of his sin. And he enjoyed preaching. No one had ever preached like John the Baptist. Jesus said that this man, John the Baptist, was the greatest man born among women. That's just to say he was the greatest man who had ever lived. He loved to hear him preach, but he was confused by John the Baptist. Now let me ask you a question. John the Baptist's message is in verse um, 18. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod is confused by John the Baptist's message. What, what is so confusing about that message? I've thought about that all week. That's pretty straightforward to me. It's not complicated. It just seems like he doesn't like it. And it's amazing how when you hear something in the Word that you don't like, you can start sort of backpedaling and say, well, does it really mean that? Maybe it means this. Yeah, yeah, if you think about this and this. and There are whole commentaries written to help you back out of what God actually says. And somehow you can read a passage that's very clear. You can go read four commentaries, and then all of a sudden that passage that was so clear is all foggy and unclear. You know, the Word of God is very clear and understandable. Herod is confused, not because the message is unclear, but because he loves his sin. So Herod enjoyed listening to him because he recognized that John was a man of God. So he tried to keep him safe from his bitter wife, bitter slash crazy wife, who was trying to kill him. And the whole dynamic is just fascinating because there's so much at play. But let me just sort of zero into one thing here. What seems to be happening with Herod Antipas, why it's so confusing, their relationship is such an odd thing. 
I think the reason for that is because as Herod Antipas is hearing John the Baptist preach, and, and John is calling him to repentance, Herod's conscience is being awakened. All of a sudden, I mean, he's surrounded by people who would, are yes-men. Right? Everyone tells him, you're wonderful, Herod. We love you. You're the best. We'll call you king, even though you're not really a king. We'll do that. And all of a sudden, someone walks into the room who has the courage to call him out for his sin. And his conscience is awakened. And all of a sudden, he's being confronted by God's view of himself. He hadn't given it any thought before, but now all of a sudden, as he hears John preach, he's confronted with God's thoughts about him. His conscience is aroused. And all of a sudden, he's beginning to get some clarity about who he is and who God is. You probably remember when that happened to you. I remember when it happened to me. Up to the point when God aroused my conscience, I thought I was a good person. I thought I had no real need for God, though, because I was so moral, especially compared to my crazy friends. I, I was a good guy. I lived a pretty moral life. But as I was reading the book of Romans, all of a sudden my conscience was awakened. And I was brought face to face, not with my self-evaluation or even the evaluation of my peers or my family. I was brought face to face with God's evaluation of me. And when I read Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Their mouth is an open grave. The venom of asps is under their tongue. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and on and on and on. I remember circling that spot and saying, this is me. Because all of a sudden, God was telling me His thoughts about me. And my conscience was awakened. And you, of course, know that experience when you first understood that your sin was far greater than you had thought. And all of a sudden... Your conscience is roused and you know you have to do something. Right? You know you've got to do something. Something's got to change here. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to respond? And, and that's where Herod is. Right? His conscience is aroused. He's confronted by, the, by God through the ministry of John. And he will either, this is what we all do, we will either respond in repentance and faith or we will try to hush our conscience in some way. Right? We will either repent of the sin that our conscience is accusing us of, or we will try to justify our sin and sort of wrestle with God and say, look, it's not that bad. I know you said it's very clear here, but it's not as bad as you're saying it is. So we'll try to justify our sin, or we'll try to do some form of penance. Repentance is the opposite of repentance. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning to God. Penance is saying, I'll cling to my sin and I'll just do some good stuff for God so that He'll just get over it. And that's actually what Herod is doing here. He's, it seems as if he's trying to deal with his conscience and he's trying to do some good stuff for John. I can't kill John, although he's preaching against me. I can't kill him. I've got to keep him safe. But I, I also don't want to repent of my adultery and my sensuality. So he's trying to walk the middle road here. And this is his conscience then being awakened. But tragically, what we see as we move on to verse 21 and following is that 
the process of his conscience being awakened, it quickly turns to his conscience being spurned altogether. And, and it's, it unfolds beginning in verse 21. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Now, this was a strategic day. For who? Not for Herod, but for Herodias. She has a grudge. She's been looking for an opportunity to put an end to this street preacher, John the Baptist. And Herod's birthday was the perfect occasion. She understood that at this sort of Roman-style birthday, that Herod would be inviting the nobility of Galilee to a night of revelry. It's a kind of party that was common among the elite in Rome and would have included drinking, entertainment, feasting, and all manner of sexual deviance. Only men would have been allowed to attend as guests. There would have been women there, but they would have been part of the entertainment. What's really shocking is that in verse 22, at some point in the night, the daughter of Herodias herself, the stepdaughter of Herod, who is the princess, At some point, she comes out and she dances to entertain these drunken men. That's incredible because she's a member of the royal family. It's unthinkable debauchery. She, the princess, becomes part of the entertainment. Of course, all of Herod's buddies love it. But she was Herod's stepdaughter. I mean, so the debauchery is, is there just on so many levels. But look at verse 22. When the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The language there is she's fawning all over him. That's the idea. She pleased Herod. She was fawning all over him, over the guests. The question, of course, is why does the princess come in? Why would this ever happen? What's going on here? Well, of course, this was a strategic day for whom? Herodias. She sends her daughter in. Now, why would Herodias send the princess into the room to dance before these men? Well, it seems obvious that Herodias did that knowing that Herod would have been intoxicated and in a leecherous state. And so she's so bitter and angry at John for calling her to repent, and she's really angry at God. When people are angry, when we show them the Word of God and where they need to repent, and they're angry with us, it seems, it, it, their fight is not with us, it's with God. We are just the representative. The same is true when I've been confronted about my own sin. Same is true for you. And here it is. She's angry with John and wants to kill him, but she really wants to dethrone and kill God. That's the real issue. And she's so bitter that she's willing to objectify and use her own daughter, the princess, as bait to catch Herod and then to twist his arm to get him to kill John the Baptist. This is wickedness. That's why I said it's the stuff of soap operas. But it wasn't a soap opera. It wasn't dramatized. This was real life. Herodias knew that she could get to Herod's will by going through his sexual passion. 
And so that's what she does. She sends her daughter in to fawn over Herod and to flatter him. And Herod, driven by his inflamed passions, says to her in verse 22, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He plays right into Herodias' hand. And he swore to her. He, he takes it further. Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you. Up to half of my kingdom. He's in this state of euphoria, sinful euphoria. He's probably drunk. He's intoxicated. He's just excited about all that's in front of him. Here's the princess. What in the world? I'll give you whatever you want. It's extravagant offer, probably hyperbolic. He's probably just saying, look, I'm the king. I can do whatever you want. He swears an oath to sort of authenticate it and submit it. And notice then, in verse 24, clearly, Herodias' daughter knows what's going on. And so when she sees Herod take the bait, she quickly goes out and says to her mother, what shall I ask for? All right, I did it. We got him. Now what do I need to ask for? Verse 25. Well, she responds to her daughter by saying, the head of John the Baptist. Verse 24. She doesn't miss a beat. The head of John the Baptist. And so then in verse 25, immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The last thing that any of them were expecting. But the very fact that she could make this request underscores the perversity that was happening in that room. And, and even the way she makes the request to Herod is dramatic. In Greek, the word order reads like this. I want you at once to give me on a platter the head of John the Baptist. She saves the most dramatic part until the end. And she's moving in haste. That's emphatic there. She's moving quickly because she wants to get Herod to act before the guests leave and he changes his mind. And she knows that Herod has an affinity for John and she probably can't understand it any more than Herodias could. And even in verse 26, you see that Herod is struggling. Although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. You see, he knew that it was wrong to kill John. His conscience had been awakened and he was aware that John was a prophet. But in this moment, he's afraid that if he refuses his stepdaughter's request, that he will lose the respect of his friends. To go back on his word would have been a major loss of credibility, and it was a price that Herod did not want to pay. Kill the prophet or win the praise of my friends. His conscience had been awakened. This is the prophet of God. What am I going to do? Momentary pleasure? Momentary praise? Or shall I finally repent? Driven by his own unrestrained passion, he makes a foolish oath 
And now he's being driven by his pride and ego to go against the very conscience that God had mercifully awakened. And so, verse 27, he moves to kill John the Baptist. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Mission accomplished for Herodias. So if verses 17 to 20 show us that Herod's conscience had been awakened by John's preaching, by this point, verses 21 to 28, we see that his conscience had now been utterly spurned. He had refused to respond in repentance, and now he sealed the deal by ending John's life against what he knew to be right. So that's the story. And it really unfolds as a case study on what not to do when your conscience is awakened. You don't continue to cling to the sin that God is convicting you of. You don't continue to follow your unbridled passions when your conscience is awakened as it was for Herod here. When it's awakened, you must repent. You must repent to turn from your sin and bow to God. That's what must happen. If you don't do that, you set yourself to follow Herod's model, which, of course, is being exalted here as a sort of way of saying, don't do that. Here's what Herod did. Over and against the Word of God, Herod continued to indulge in the same sort of sexual impulses that had prompted John's rebuke in the first place. Remember, it began with Herod's unrestrained passion for his brother Philip's wife. He called it love. But it wasn't love at all. It was selfish, sinful, self-indulgent passion. It was lust. That's what it was. And rather than repenting of that characterological sin... Herod tried to appease his conscience by doing good things for John the Baptist so that he could hold on to his sin and make God happy and John the Baptist happy over here and also to keep his wife happy to some extent by keeping John imprisoned. But that's not repentance. That's penance. God called him to repent, not to make up for his sin by doing good stuff for John. And so in the end, Herod does not repent And his unrestrained sexual passion continues to rule him. The very thing that God had so graciously sent a messenger to confront is the thing that ruins Herod. Herod refused to let go of that pet sin. And he's paying for it even today. So that was the first step in his hardening conscience. God convicted him of a sin, and he said, no, 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 I want to I hang on to it. I'll figure out some way to make it work. But you can't strike those kind of bargains with God. When God convicts your conscience of a sin, you must repent. Turn from it and follow His way. He's calling you to the path of life and joy and peace. 
The lie is that I've got to have this pet sin or I won't be happy. So you sort of keep it in your pocket. You think you tell people you've dealt with it, but you keep it in your pocket. And when life gets hard, when things aren't going your way, and you want a little bit of instant pleasure, you just pull it out. Okay, here's my pet sin. This was what Herod was doing. He, he was not willing to let it go. And he struck a bargain, or tried to. And it ended with his hardening conscience. At least that was the first step. second step, really, was that he continued to bow to his own pride. Rather than do what God was telling him to do, he said, I'll do it my way. That's pride. Pride is self-focus. Pride is self-exaltation. Pride says, I know better than God. Now, you might not say that explicitly, but you walk that out every day of your life. And here is Herod, confronted by his sin, but in the end, he chooses to please the people around him so that he's built up and gets the praise, and he's willing to kill John the Baptist in order to make that happen. It's interesting that Mark underscores the influential status of the people who are brought to this party. Now, verse 21, they're the Lord's military commanders, literally that's the leaders of thousands, and the leading men of Galilee. These are all the people that Herod wanted to impress. So after he had been led by his sinful passion to make a foolish oath to his stepdaughter, he's now faced with this impossible, impossible decision, at least impossible for him. Do I take back my oath and save the life of this holy man that God has sent me and lose the respect of these people in the room? Or do I stand on my oath and kill John the Baptist, even though I know it's a sin against God, and I win the praise of men. It's clearly in anguish, anguish, verse 26. He was sorry for what he was about to do, meaning that he's grieved, he's in turmoil. It wasn't what he wanted to do, but he wanted to do that more than he wanted to let go of his sin. And so he grants his daughter's wishes in spite of his conscience. It's a terrible thing to do. Martin Luther the one who said to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And Herod does exactly that. He goes against his conscience. And when we finally come back up now to verse 14, which kind of prompted this whole narrative, and Herod is faced with this idea or this possibility that maybe Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. All of a sudden, all he can think about is that that's probably true. I have done a wicked thing. I have run from God. I've ran from Him. I've spurned my conscience. And now God will surely get me. He's fearful. He's paranoid. Which fear and paranoia, distress, all of that is the fruit of a spurned conscience. Puritan said that a spurned conscience is a miserable companion. And that's right. To go against your conscience when God has shown you your sin, to defy it, to defy God, will always lead to misery. And that's what's going on here. So the reports come in. Herod receives them. 
he can't help but be drawn irresistibly to the idea that John the Baptist has now risen. But he's not remorseful. He's not saying, oh, what have I done? Let me throw myself at the mercy of God. His concern is only for himself. He's he's concerned that now God is sending, sending some apparition or ghosts or something to haunt him. All he can think about, when he thinks about the character of God, all he can think about is now God is out to get me. It went from a, an overture from God of love. Repent, and God will pardon. John the Baptist. Right? Repent. The Messiah has come. Repent. He will pardon sins. He will forgive you. And now, all Herod can think about is, there's no way I could go to him. He's out to get me. And, and that's the point here. Is that when you spurn your conscience and you live in unrepentant passion and unrepentant pride, it will inevitably lead you to think wrongly about God. And that's exactly what's happening here. Herod's thinking wrongly about our Lord, not because he's logically deduced that Jesus can't be the Messiah. No. He's only thinking about himself. He's running from God. He doesn't want to repent. He doesn't want to turn from his sin. And now he's paying the bill for it all. So, let me bring this to a close here. If God has awakened your conscience to, to show you your sin, and your conscience is accusing you, don't try and repay God by coming to church while you still try to hold on to your sin. I was talking to a brother this week, and that's part of his testimony. I'm going to try to appease your conscience just by showing up here and clinging to your sin. God is not pleased with that. And we're glad you're here. But what God calls you to do is not hang on to your sin and come to church. He calls you to repent and turn from it. Now, none of us are perfect, so don't get the idea that I'm saying, if you want to be like us, you've got to be sinless. We are not sinless people. My wife is here. She'll be glad to talk to you about that. I am not a sinless person. None of us are there. That's why we love Jesus. We love Jesus because we understand we are great sinners who've offended God in ways that earn us an eternity in hell. But we found in God a merciful, gracious being who has given His Son to atone for our sin. So we're here to sing about Him and worship Him and love Him. All the while, we are steadfast about turning away from our sin. Why? Because we hate it. Psalm 97.10 You who love the Lord hate evil. We, We are at war with our sin even while we cling to the Lord. So we're clinging to the cross with the one hand and we've got our sword out in the other fighting our sin. That's what we try to do here. So if God has convicted you of your sin, don't think just coming to church is going to make Him happy. What He calls you to do is repent of your sin. Turn from it. And come to Christ. That's one application. Another thing here is that Mark sets before us the reality that unbelief is never logical and never simple. You all have family members who don't believe the gospel. We have friends who don't believe the gospel. Some of you are here this morning, you don't believe the gospel. And what Mark does here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he shows us 
that unbelief is never about the logic of it all. It's never about that. When people think wrongly about Jesus, there is always a mountain of complexity behind it. People don't reject Christ because the gospel doesn't make sense. That's not why people reject Jesus. The gospel makes sense. It's so simple the child can understand it. And many of you precious children in this room understand the gospel. And we love that. We're grateful to the Lord for that. So it's not about logic or rationality. What happens is that people reject Jesus and live in unbelief because they are loyal to their sin and their self, their pride. It's not about the lack of clarity in the gospel at all. What happens is this. God graciously comes, awakens the conscience with the word of God. The individual is roused to see their sin. He sets the remedy of the gospel before them and they reject it not because it's not logical. They reject it because they love themselves and their sin more than God. They don't want to let sin go. I've heard this several times and it's true. You've got a young man who decides he's an atheist. He comes in the room, he says, you know, I, I just don't know if I believe this stuff is true anymore godly man, a godly counselor that I know said this is what he would always ask what sexual sins are you enslaved to? tell me what are you hiding? people don't reject God because it's illogical people reject God because they hate him one, sure, but because they love their sin and they don't want to let go of it and so then they suppress their conscience and they exalt themselves as the arbiter of truth and pretend that they know better than God. And in the end, they choose to indulge their own lust and bow to their own pride and spurn their conscience until at some point it's too late. And that's the real tragedy of this entire story. God sends mercy and grace through John the Baptist to Herod. But because of his pride and unbelief and because he doesn't repent, he spurns his conscience he rejects the Lord, he rejects the gospel, and he does so to his everlasting peril. And that's true for all of us here this morning. Christian, God doesn't call you to do good works while you hang on to your sin to make him okay. He calls us to repent of that sin. Unbeliever, God doesn't call you to come to church to make him happy so you can hang on to your sin. No. He calls you to repent and trust him. This is the time in world history, in the history of redemption, where God opens His arms and He says, Come to me, whoever is willing, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the time of mercy. So if your conscience is pricked, is, is weighing on you, come to Jesus. Don't wait. Don't wait. Because the end result of going against your conscience will put you in the same place as Herod Antipas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder, and we pray that you would cause it, its truths, the truths of your word, to penetrate our hearts. And Lord, may we all be quick to repent, quick to turn from sin, and quick to embrace the gospel of Christ, full pardon of sins, everlasting joy that begins now.
And Lord, we pray that you would bring this about for your namesake. Amen.